Today, we're going to look at the Gospel of Mark. So today is Palm Sunday, uh, as I mentioned before, and uh, we're going to read about Jesus' triumphal entry. We'll do that looking at the Gospel of Mark. I'll read from chapter 11 all the way to through cha- uh, verse 19. Ah, chapter 11, 1 through 19. Okay, this is the word of the Lord. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes... Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when the evening came, they went out of the city. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Uh, God, we thank you for this word, and we pray that uh, just as we remember, um, uh, as we remember what today marks in terms of, uh, I guess, the acceleration to the road to the cross, uh, in which we'll remember on Good Friday. Um, we, we pray, God, that you would uh, give us a deep sense of uh, the person of Jesus once again. And, you know, sometimes we, we make, um, you know, we make our faith to be about many things which are important things, uh, but at the heart of it is Jesus. And so uh, in this time and also throughout this week, uh, help us to see Jesus more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Man, worship was too good because I'm like losing my voice already from all the singing. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> okay, today is Palm Sunday in the church calendar, and uh, I don't always preach on this passage on Palm Sunday, but especially because now we have like some of the uh, the youth here, uh, I do want to make sure that you understand what Palm Sunday is on the church calendar. And this is the day when Jesus, he enters into the city of Jerusalem. And the reason we call it Palm, Brand, uh, Palm Sunday is because what they would do is they would lay out, like in the passage it says like leafy branches. Uh, they, they laid out with 
palm branches, like palm tree branches, and Jesus rides in on this colt. And all of, all of the Gospels, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of the Gospels actually include this story because it's a very important event in terms of uh, the life of Jesus. And just by comparison, if you think about it, for all the hoopla that Christmas gets, uh, only two of the four Gospels actually talk about the narrative of the birth of Jesus. When you read Mark's Gospel, one of the things that you notice is that every time Jesus performs this miracle, crowds are like flocking to him. They're drawn to him. He's like this uh, rock star, this celebrity. And what Jesus is doing is he's always trying to get away from the crowds, right? So he does something amazing. Crowds want to flock to him. He like gets away. Uh, he doesn't want to draw too much attention to himself because he knew that probably what it would end up doing is it would accelerate his road to the cross and he would always say it's not the right time for that yet. But what we see in this passage when Jesus enters into Jerusalem is things change pretty quickly and the agenda changes pretty quickly. Jesus, he doesn't perform any more healing miracles. He doesn't, uh, he no longer tries to maintain this low profile. But when he enters into Jerusalem, he begins to now uh, go public. And in that going public, he starts to engage in some very public confrontations as well. So as we start off this week, which is known as the Passion Week, and we call it Passion Week not because of passion as our desires, but because of uh, suffering, Jesus' suffering, uh, I want to look at the story that signals the beginning of Palm Sunday. So first, one of the reasons why Palm Sunday is significant or this event of Palm Sunday is significant is because this is, as I, as I said before, this is the moment where Jesus now goes public. And all throughout the Gospel of Mark, He's saying, don't tell anybody about me. Don't tell anybody about me. Now in this passage, Jesus makes this very public display where he reveals like what scholars would call the messianic secret. He kind of reveals himself, and you start to see in a very public way he's beginning to identify as the Messiah, as a Christ that people are waiting for. And it also tells us that by making this very public display, he's also ready to make this journey towards the cross. He tells two of his disciples, he says, go into a village where they, find a, they would find a colt, and this colt no, but no one would ever sit, have sat on. And he says, untie this colt and, and bring it to me. And when they bring the colt, Jesus sits on it, and he proceeds to ride it while people shout, Hosanna, right? If you're familiar with the story, uh, you may not find it that strange because you're used to it, but if you've ever if you've never heard this story before, if you kind of visualize this story in your head, it's actually a little bit comical. In the ancient world, you have like these stories of these mighty kings, and how do you picture a mighty king entering into a city after some kind of major victory? They're riding on like a mighty steed, right? There's cheers and the praises of people, and they're riding with like strength, and they're riding in honor. And this is sort of what we're seeing when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, right? Crowds who probably follow Jesus from Galilee, they're cheering because they're saying, wow, right, the Messiah is here, our, our king has come. And they think it's going to be this like major political victory for the nation of Israel. But the way Jesus enters, it's almost like a, a parody of what you would expect. Because ri rather than riding in on this like mighty steed, this amazing horse, Jesus makes his like public appearance in this all-important city of Jerusalem not on this mighty steed, but riding on this little colt, right? 
what is a colt? Just in case you don't know, colt is like a small animal. It looks like a small horse kind of. It's not something a mighty warrior would ride on. Maybe it's something a child <laughs> would ride on. Uh, if you've ever been to like one of those apple picking farms and they have like, you know, pony rides, and uh, who, the kids are like, oh, maybe I want to ride. Like my kids are like, oh, I want to ride a pony, and you pay some money. They ride a pony. The pony's like this big, and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you never really see like an adult riding a pony, right? It's just like too small. It, it just looks a little bit foolish and a little bit embarrassing. I would never ride one of these little ponies because I'm like, uh, I would look ridiculous. Uh, Jesus is kind of coming in uh, into Jerusalem, right? He's supposed to be mighty king riding on like this little colt. It would be, I think, even more embarrassing uh, the greater honor that you have. Right, so if I write it, I guess I can endure it. Kids would, yeah, you look, you look silly. It's okay, but what if somebody of like uh, the status of like a king were to ride something like a pony during uh, our spring break? Uh, it does feel like the kids are a little bit like you know edgy. I wonder if spring break has anything to do with that. But anyway, in my, in my family as well. But uh, during spring break, uh, our family we uh, we went to France and uh, we visited the Palace of Versailles. And the Palace of Versailles is like, it's an important historical site, but right now today it's basically a museum and there's like a deep sense of royalty as you walk through the palace and you see all the paintings and you see the, the king's bedroom and then the queen's bedroom. Uh, and it's still a site used for royalty because uh, we were watching the news and it said like King Charles, he was scheduled to make a visit at the Palace of Versailles but uh, if you follow the news in France, there's like a bunch of social unrest and political unrest because, um, you know, the, um, uh, what's his name, Macron, what's his name? I'm thinking of Macron now. Uh, <laughs> the president wants to raise the age of retirement uh, from age 62 to 64. So when we were there, everybody was striking, like all the, all the, um, the public workers were striking. So there's like trash everywhere. There's like transportation strikes everywhere. Um, uh, people were protesting, and because of that, they were like, you know, King Charles shouldn't come and visit this place. And I think what ended up happening, King Charles decided to postpone his visit to France at a later date. But I was like, well, what if King Charles did come to the Palace of Versailles? There would probably be a lot of fanfare. And I imagine what would happen is, like, people would kind of be lined up, and there would be, like, this nice walking path made for him. And people would be like, you know, showing him honor. Maybe there would be music. I don't know what happens when a king visits a, a place or a city. Uh, but I imagine it would be like the standard procedure is to uh, bring, bring great honor to this royal figure that comes and visits their country. And uh, imagine like King Charles comes in and instead of like walking with like dignity and great honor, what if he comes in on like those like little micro scooters that kids ride and he's like, ooh, ooh, right? That's like a parody of entering in like somebody like King Charles entering in. It would look very silly and very foolish. That's kind of like what it looks like for Jesus to be doing entering Jerusalem on this cult. Now, why does he enter in on this cult? I think one reason might be to... Well, it is because he's fulfilling this prophecy found in Zechariah 9, which tells us that the king will come humble and mounted on a donkey. Uh, this would have been one of the passages that uh, Jewish people would have understood to be talking about the Messiah. So this entrance is a statement that Jesus, uh, that is saying that Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah that everybody's waiting for. They are shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is uh, from that Psalm 118. 
And what they're doing is they're shouting this uh, Hallel psalm, which would be, have been recited from uh, the pilgrimage that they would make from Jerusalem to Jerusalem during the time of Passover. And so when they say blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, uh, you notice that's actually not part of the original psalm, part of 118. Uh, what they seem to be saying is they're anticipating Jesus is now the king who will come like David, who will restore our kingdom. What they didn't anticipate was that Jesus would be the king who would also be very subversive, a very subversive figure. Because in this passage, right after he enters into Jerusalem, Jesus starts to get into people's faces, right? You look at starting at verse 15, he enters into the temple and he begins to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple and he overturns tables and the money cha- of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And then he says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And uh, if you just kind of picture what's going on here, you know, for a Jewish person, the temple is like the heart of Israel's religious life. And for them, it probably served as a major symbol of their national identity. And the way the temple is structured, you had like these four divisions. So you have the, the Holy of Holies, which is like one room. And it was a place that the high priest would enter once a year on Yom Kippur and make atonement for sin. Then you had the court of Israel, and that was reserved for circumcised Jewish males. Then you had the court of women, which was reserved for Jewish women. And then finally, outside of all of these courts, you had the court of Gentiles. And there was a wall that would separate the sanctuary from the court of Gentiles. And apparently on this wall, uh, there was a sign and it read this. It said, no foreigner may enter within the railing and enclosure that surround the temple. Anyone apprehended shall have himself to blame for his consequent death. Uh, you go to a museum, you go to the Louvre, right? There's all these like little ropes and you're not supposed to cross it. If you cross it, you won't die <laughs> in the temple. They're giving you a warning. If you are a Gentile and you go into a place where you're not supposed to enter, um, you know, you can't blame us for your consequent death. So the idea is that those who were not Jewish were very much excluded from entering into uh, certain parts of the sanctuary. And the court of Gentiles was supposed to be for non-Jewish people who wanted to maybe participate or be near worship and prayer. However, what ended up happening is it became a place of business where for one particular sect of Judaism, the Sadducees, they made a lot of money and they financially benefited. Jesus sees all this business being conducted and he causes a scene. He confronts them. He says, this is not right. Uh, this scene would be shocking for a couple of reasons because on the surface, uh, you know, Je- Jesus seems like a little bit uh, crazy. Like maybe it's like you would think, whoa, he's overreacting. He's throwing all this furniture around. Imagine going onto like the trading floor of Wall Street and someone's like, oh, all this greed and you're throwing around all the computers, right? It's like, whoa, 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 what, what, what's the matter, right? But there's actually something deeper going on beneath the surface because when we get a little deeper, we can really see how subversive Jesus is being here. In those days, the popular thought regarding the Messiah was that he would purge the temple of those who didn't belong. And most Jewish people assumed that means the Gentiles. The temple would be purged of the Gentiles. 
And so therefore there's a strong sense of nationalistic pride, which is why the temple was such an important symbol of that. There was hope that the Messiah would once again lead this national movement, this political movement, and Israel would become the nation that it once was under King David again. And even Jesus' disciples are expecting this. But when Jesus cleanses the temple, you know who he's actually condemning? He's condemning the temple religion and all the people associated with it. Uh, he's not condemning the Gentiles here. He's condemning the, these, I guess, the Jewish Sadducees. I don't have uh, <clears throat> too much time to get into it, but the fig tree is a, a, an important part of understanding this passage. And Jesus curses the fig tree, and the withering of the fig tree functions like a parable <coughs> that illustrates um, the inadequacy of temple religion. And Jesus is not doing what people would have expected, and he's not cursing the Gentiles here, but he's cursing the Jewish religious leaders. One commentator puts it like this. He says, Jesus does not clear the temple of Gentiles, but for Gentiles. And this point is made clear when Jesus makes an allusion to Isaiah 56, when he talks about how God would gather all foreigners, all those who are cast out, all outcasts, to himself, and how now salvation would be offered to all the nations. And that's why when we read this passage, it's not the Gentiles that want to destroy Jesus, but it's the chief priests and the scribes. Everyone expected Jesus to condemn the Gentiles and the foreigners. They didn't expect Jesus to condemn the Jewish religious leaders. But you see, he, Jesus is indicting them and indicting temple religion uh, as a whole because he's signaling a new era is coming. A new era is coming. We are in a season in our church where we're trying to focus on our mission as a church. And what Jesus does in this very passage has great implications for that mission. Up until uh, this point, it was primarily the Israelites who had access to God. It was only through this sacrificial system and through a mediator that a Jewish person would have access to God. If you weren't a Jewish person, the closest you could get to God was by being on the outside of this division, on the outside of the walls in the sanctuary in the court of Gentiles. In a temple religion, there are so many restrictions, which makes sense because God is holy. God is awesome. God is mighty. If you're a high priest, you can only enter the Holy of Holies once a year. If you're a circumcised Jewish male, you can get as close to the court of Israel. If you're a Jewish woman, you can get as close to the court of women. If you are a Gentile, you can get as close to being in the court of Gentiles. But when Jesus comes, he cleanses his temple, and what he is now essentially saying is this, temple religion is not good enough. The limitations that are set around all these groups of people to be in the presence of God is actually not the way it was meant to be. If temple religion is not good enough, then the question becomes, how then do these walls get removed? How do these limitations get removed? How can now all people have access to the presence of God? We know what the answer is not. It's not based on one's ethnicity or what nation you belong to. It's not based on whether you hold a certain kind of religious office. It's not based on gender. It's not even based on your good deeds or your merits or your achievements. The only reason that these restrictions and these limitations are removed is because now there is a final temple and an ultimate priest in the person of Jesus Christ. 
And when Jesus dies on the cross, what he does is he tears down those walls. He opens a way to the presence of God, which is why if you read in Mark 15, after Jesus breathes his last breath, what does it say? It says the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Why unleashing the presence of God, the very uh, place where God dwelt in the Holy of Holies, unleashing it now to the entire world? I think that part probably sounds good to most people. Amen that God includes everyone and nobody should be excluded from his presence. But there's also something else here that we have to realize, that we have to remember that inclusion only happens because Jesus is also the king. Those two go together. And the temptation of, I don't know, mission, the temptation of being a believer in a world where uh, the surrounding culture is, uh, the values are increasingly um, conflicting with Christianity. Uh, maybe the temptation of mission is to maybe emphasize that first part, the inclusivity of Jesus, without emphasizing the second part, that Jesus is also our king. Uh, it's to say that Jesus is open to everyone, which is true, um, but not really talking about, but he has to be your king. <laughs> uh, you, have to, you have to honor him and, and obey him. They, they go hand in hand. You have to submit to him as the reigning king. Uh, I don't know if uh, your kids say this, uh, I'm actually I'm probably almost 100% sure that your kids probably do this, <laughs> but sometimes I'll tell one of my kids, uh, especially the younger one, I'll say, you know, like I'll tell her to do something, and she'll say, why, right? And uh, I might say, look, look, after you're done eating, take your dishes and put it in the sink, and she'd say, why? Well, as a parent, you have two choices in that situation, right? I guess you could explain it to them. And I could say, well, if you leave your dishes on the table, uh, we have a dog. The dog might get to it and eat the food, right? Or I could go deeper and say, uh, well, I'm concerned about your maturity and development. And if you grow up and you don't learn a sense of responsibility and take care of your own dishes and clean up after yourself, uh, you won't develop and mature in the way that you ought, right? I, I could explain, give all these kinds of reasons. Or I could say, do it because I'm your father. I told you. Right? <laughs> you have those two choices. Uh, here's what happens. The second answer frustrates them uh, because they don't want to do it. They don't want to listen. Uh, if I give them an explanation, uh, it's a little bit easier because then they might say, oh, okay, I get it. Right, I understand. Because I agree with your explanation, I'll do it. Right? But here's the problem with that first answer. That's not really obedience. And that's not really uh, learning what it is to submit, for a child to submit to their parent. Uh, it's not teaching them to submit to authority. It's basically agreement. If they have to agree in order to do what I am telling them to do, then who has the authority? They do. They're saying, I have to judge whether you as the parent, what you're telling me makes sense to me. And if it makes sense to me, then I'll do it, right? My kids are six and eight. I am 40. Should a six-year-old or an eight-year-old really be calling their own shots in life over their parent? I'm biased. I don't think so, right? Uh, the gap between God and us is, is much more than that, is it not, right? Because as parents, we're fallible. Uh, as parents, we're not omniscient. As parents, our love is not perfect. Uh, but if you think about who God is and who we are like in terms of that gap, 
for us to say, well, I'll only submit to Jesus if I agree, <laughs> if it makes sense to me. I have to agree first. It has to make sense to me first. We're not really submitting to Jesus as our king. He's no longer our king. Uh, he he kind of becomes like a, a nice consultant, and he consults us with what we ought to do in our life, but he's not king. So even as we think about our mission, we're not just saying Jesus is inclusive and welcoming all people to him, but we're also saying, look, Jesus is the king who reigns. And because he is the king who reigns, we are called to submit to him and obey him. But here's the thing. In a place like uh, New York City, that makes a lot of people uncomfortable, right? To talk in that, those kind of lang- that kind of uh, language. Uh, why? Well, first, I think in general, all people like to be in control, from the oldest to the youngest. We like to be in control. Uh, if you're uh, one of the youth, when your parents tell you to do something and like you have no control over whether you should do it or not do it, right? It drives you crazy. For the parent, when you tell your child to do something and they don't do it, uh, and you don't have control over your child, right, it drives you crazy. We all like to be in control. We all want to have that ability to agree before having to obey. Um, more so for New Yorkers, I think New Yorkers generally have a hard time, for example, like committing to something, like to say, hey, there's a, there's a meeting, I don't know, there's like a prayer meeting on Tuesday. Do you want to come? And it's like, oh, maybe, right? That's the answer. Nobody's going to say, yeah, I'll be there. <laughs> or it could be a social event, like there's some kind of uh, a social gathering on Friday. Hey, we're going to have like a gathering on Friday. Can you come? Oh, maybe, right? Why do we say, oh, maybe, and not say, yeah, I'll be there for sure? Well, because we want control of our nights. What if something better comes up, right? What if we're tired that night and we just don't feel like going? So we want to leave our options open. That, that's a sense of wanting some kind of control. We like control. And therefore, this idea of submitting to a king who, that, who has uh, sovereignty and control makes us very uncomfortable. The second reason, though, why it makes us very uncomfortable is we're a people who are generally very suspicious of uh, power and you're right to be. The reality is all human kings, all other people who have filled that role of king has the potential to hurt us. And uh, why would we hand over trust to someone with that kind of power? Why would we let someone reign over us in that kind of way? True. But what if this king knew us more than we could ever know and not only that, what if this king loved us more than we could ever imagine? And not only that, but what if this king used his power and used his authority to become weak? What if this king was the personification of humility? I think that would make the biggest difference in the world. You see, friends, Jesus is our king, and he does reign, and we are called to obey him and submit to him. Uh, but remember this. Jesus is a king who ultimately used his authority to humble himself, to ride in on this little cult, to submit himself to death as a criminal, even death on a cross, next to two other criminals being mocked and scorned hanging naked on a cross for us, wearing crown of thorns, being mocked as the king of the Jews. Why? So that we might be included in his kingdom.
That's the kind of king we have. Not the king who lords power over us. Uh, the only power and authority he exercises over us is because submitting to that power and authority ultimately is for our good and for our salvation. But Jesus is the kind of king who comes in, on, in riding on a colt into Jerusalem voluntarily of his own volition, walking this road towards the cross, which we will remember on Good Friday because he loves us, because he wants these walls of separation to be broken down because he wants us to have access to the presence of God, because he wants us to be invited into his kingdom, to be citizens of his kingdom, to be children into his very own family, to experience love that he can only give, to experience hope that he can only provide. That is a king that we have. And therefore, we submit to him joyfully, freely, knowing he is our good king and longs for our good. Palm Sunday is amazing. Doesn't get much fanfare. There's no gifts involved. There's no prizes involved. Um, but it shows us who our king is and what a humble king he is. Let's pray. God, if we could only see all the uh, human figures of authority uh, around us, or if we could see uh, in history all the examples of human kings, sure, there are some good ones, but overwhelmingly, we would probably say, wow, there were a lot of bad ones who caused a lot of uh, pain and hardship. And yet, for some reason, uh, at least in our culture, there is still some kind of sense of uh, infatuation with kings and queens and princes and princesses that we read about in many of our stories that captivate our imaginations. And I think maybe one of the things it shows us is that there is something within us because of how you created us that longs for a king, a good king. And you've given us this good king in Jesus. And Palm Sunday shows us and gives a, us a taste of what kind of king we have, a king that subverts all expectations of what everybody thought Jesus should be and what kind of king he should be. He's not the king who comes to grab political power and reign uh, with earthly and worldly power, but he's the kind of king who submits in humility to death on a cross, and I pray, God, that you would help us to know this king, to worship this king, to obey this king. And we remember um, what a great king we have every time we think about Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen.